Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, what's next for Atlanta's Mall West End? We've had this conversation before, but there have been some developments, and we'll get the latest. Also, President Joe Biden has again invoked the Defense Production Act for another manufacturing shortage. This time, it's all about solar panels. What's behind the delays and how it's impacting solar projects across the nation? All those conversations coming up. But first this, that House Judiciary Committee is debating assault weapons ban legislation today. Now, this legislation was actually introduced in March of last year. As to the likelihood of the measure passing, it does not have bipartisan support, as pointed out today by ranking member Republican Jim Jordan of Ohio. We said this in the last the last markup on legislation where the Democrats were trying to infringe on Americans, law-abiding Americans, Second Amendment liberties. We said the Democrats' beef is with the Second Amendment. If you want to change the Second you want to get rid of the Second Amendment, go try a constitutional amendment. See how far you get with that. Georgia Congresswoman Lucy McBath, in graphic detail, told her fellow lawmakers the damage assault weapons cause. We should note that McBath's description may be unsettling for some listeners. It's about 17 seconds long. Assault rifles cause something called cavitation. The bullet does not just travel through the body. It creates a cavity within it. Organs ruptured and shred, bones shatter, and the shards serve as shrapnel as soft body tissue is torn into pieces. In other news, a judge is ordering Rudy Giuliani to appear before Fulton County Special Grand Jury next month. Now, this is the probe from Fulton District Attorney Fonnie Willis's office into alleged efforts orchestrated by former President Donald Trump to overturn Georgia's presidential election results. Giuliani is former President Trump's attorney, and because he didn't appear for a hearing in New York last week to challenge a subpoena, Judge Thomas Farber in his ruling ordered Rudy Giuliani to appear on August 9th or, quote, on any such other dates as this court may order. And there's more news related to that. 16 Georgia Republicans are now targets of the Fulton County Special Grand Jury investigation. And of course, this probe centers on their alleged efforts, again, to overturn the 2020 election results. As we hear from WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass. The 16 Republicans position themselves as fake presidential electors, meant to replace the 16 legitimate electors for Joe Biden in the Electoral College. In a new filing today, District Attorney Fonnie Willis revealed all 16 fake electors are targets of the probe. The group includes State Senator Burt Jones, the GOP nominee for lieutenant governor, and Georgia Republican Party Chair David Schaefer. Willis's filing was in response to an effort from several of those fake electors to avoid testifying. They claim their actions were legal, and they're asking a judge to disqualify Willis from prosecuting the case. Willis told the judge their motion has no merit and should be denied. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. And an update to a story you brought to you yesterday here on Closer Look. Jewish rights advocates say a new logo at a Cobb County elementary school could be a good learning opportunity for students. As Martha Dalton reports, parents and students were outraged this week, saying the new logo resembles a Nazi war eagle. Cobb says the new logo for the Eastside Eagles was based on eagles' wings worn by U.S. Army colonels. But the design has drawn comparisons to an eagle created by the Nazi party. Dove Wilker with the American Jewish Committee doesn't think the anti-Semitic imagery was intentional. What it demonstrates to me is a lack of overall education about global issues and historical facts. The school is not currently using the logo. The district says it's considering changes. Wilker says Cobb could turn the apparent mistake into a learning opportunity by expanding Holocaust education. The school board passed an anti-Semitism resolution earlier this year, but has still dealt with several anti-Semitic incidents in schools. 
Martha Dalton, WABE News. And newly revealed records show another woman has filed a complaint against a steward detention center nurse for alleged sexual assault. Emily Wu Pearson reports this comes a week after immigrant advocacy groups filed federal complaints saying immigrants in detention are not safe at all. And this is the Southwest Georgia Detention Center. The private company that runs the detention center, CoreCivic, confirmed in an email to WABE that since the federal complaint was filed against Stewart, CoreCivic has discovered one additional sexual assault complaint against the same nurse. CoreCivic has acknowledged three complaints and investigations, and Immigrations and Customs Enforcement says it's investigating two additional complaints. CoreCivic said after the three investigations, the cases were dismissed. Two were closed as unsubstantiated and one was closed as unfounded. The five complaints accuse the same nurse of sexually assaulting immigrant women in detention who are seeking medical care. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. First Lady Jill Biden is set to visit Georgia tomorrow as part of a swing to tout the administration's focus on education programs through coronavirus relief funds. She'll be joined by Education Secretary Miguel Cardona. They're both set to be in Athens. The pandemic relief bill set aside more than $120 billion to help reopen schools safely and help students' academic and mental health needs. And finally, it was a great day in Atlanta yesterday. The basketball court where Walt Clyde Fraser played high school games in Atlanta is now named in his honor. As Emil Moffat reports, the NBA Hall of Famer received a hero's welcome yesterday in Atlanta's old Fourth Ward neighborhood. Before he won NBA titles, before his seven All-Star appearances, Walt Clyde Frazier was the oldest of nine children growing up in Atlanta. I grew up uh, maybe seven blocks from here. So I was just sitting there thinking how much time I've actually spent in this gym. The gym is now part of David T. Howard Middle School. Before, it was an all-black elementary school, then a high school, where Walt Frazier graduated, class of 1963. I remember the pep rallies. We used to sit over in the corner. We used to sit over in the corner and get psyched up. The guys on the team would have our shoes over our shoulders, styling and profiling. Among those in attendance were many of Frazier's high school classmates and his former coach, Ted Sparks, now 91 years old. He says not only was Frazier a star basketball and football player, but he volunteered to catch for the baseball team when no one else would. You see, the truth being told, Walt made me a good coach. Frazier wiped away tears as he listened to praise from one of his sisters, Mary Frazier Ward. He is the wheel that makes this Frazier thing turn. And we are so proud of you. She closed her remarks by saying how thrilling it was to hear her brother's name announced as part of an NBA lineup. So as I return to my seat, I will say, Walt Frazier! Already in the Basketball Hall of Fame as a player, Frazier will be inducted this year for his work in the New York Knicks broadcast booth, too. Emil Moffat, WABE News. One of the greats and well-deserves. And another disclosure, WABE's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. You're listening to Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Atlanta's Mall West End. It's been a staple in the historic West End community for years. I know. I used to go over there as well. And like many of Atlanta neighborhoods, well, we know a change has happened or a change is going to come. The Mall West End has been home to so many small businesses throughout the decades. And now it appears there's yet again a proposal to re- redevelop this property. 
Now, of course, ongoing community concerns are the familiar. Will it benefit and fit into the community? H.T. West End LLC has long been the ownership group of the Mall West End. And Charles Chuck Taylor is a longtime part-time owner for many decades. And he joins Closer Look. And we should note, we call him Chuck. Chuck Taylor is a former board member and chair of WABE's operating group, AETC. As well, he is the current board chair of the WABE Foundation. Chuck, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Hi, Rose. All right. You know, when we spoke last September, I want to go back a little bit, because when we spoke last September, you talked about what you hope would be the next phase for this property because you had some concerns. And this has been the location, obviously, for the Mall West End for a number of years. I want to go back to what we talked about real quickly. Are there provisions you would like, though, in the agreement that you can share that you would like for the Prusik Group to consider or that you would want? Well, rather than putting it that way, let me say that we have chosen the developers with whom we've spoken over the last three or four years based on their representations that they were going to do community focused uh redevelopment and uh and 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 avoid some of the issues and problems that come with traditional gentrification Mm -hmm. Uh, we could have sold this mall three or four years ago uh if we had been willing to sell it to someone who was just going to come in and do a classic redevelopment Mm -hmm. and that wasn't what we wanted we've been a part of this community for for three generations now chuck you said community focus was at the core of any decision that will be made in terms of this property being sold to a developer let's for our listeners has this has the agreement is it a done deal now with the Prusik group that they will be the new developers for this location well, we are under contract with Prusik, and they are the developers we've chosen, and we believe strongly that they are exactly what I described back in September. This is what they do. They are mission-driven developers. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing about this group is two-thirds of the partners are African-American-owned, founded, and controlled, and run. Um, they do community redevelopment uh, in these kinds of transitional neighborhoods. And this is what they do. This is the first one we've worked with where this is their mission. Mm-hmm. And we believe that that's right. As to your question, is this a done deal? Um, that's up to the city of Atlanta. Any trans, any deal that's going to have the kind of affordable housing and affordable retail space, because this is about more than just affordable housing. There's also going to be affordable retail space for small tenants in there. So housing and retail. Any develop- Oh, yeah. Any development that includes that and the other kind of community support that they're planning on is going to require uh, some incentives and some support from the city. And they are working with the city to finalize that. If the city comes through, as I hope they will, and as if they've, as, and as they've indicated that they are, this group is ready to move forward and make this happen. Uh, but right now, it's all up to... Uh, it's all up to the city uh, to come through and, and for them to work something out. And I'm not involved in those conversations. I understand. Of course, this is a different administration than when we spoke last year about this. You feel a bit more confident that this City of Atlanta administration might be able to get this done? I do. The last administration was not supportive for a variety of reasons that I can't go into uh, that had more to do with personality and personal interests than it did with actually the development. Uh, This administration has been supportive from the beginning. Uh, I've been talking with this mayor since the beginning. And uh, as he mentioned to you on your show, I was one of the first meetings he had. Mm -hmm. Um, And their team, look, it's been going more slowly than I would like. Uh, You know, it's a new administration. They're getting their feet on the ground. and, 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 And I completely understand that. Uh, but they have been very supportive. Um, they've been very demanding in terms of making sure that there's plenty of community support mm-hmm. uh, behind this. But I think they've now seen that that community support is there. And I believe they are now working forward to try and make this thing happen. Chuck, was it frustrating for you and your partner? You said you can't go into the details with the last administration. But listen, there are a lot of developers that come to Atlanta. There are a lot of projects that folks look at Atlanta and they say, that's where we want to be. You're a business owner. You know the politics that are centered around sometimes when it comes to this stuff. Uh, how frustrating was it for you, though? Uh, the last administration? Yeah. Uh, it was horrible. I, it was just awful. And, and, and I wish I could publicly say some of the things that went on uh, in that prior administration um, because 
I don't believe they were right, mm -hmm. but I can't say anything legally. Um, all I can say is that this administration is like opening the windows and letting the sun shine in. Now, I want to be clear. Is there a second New York-based developer that's also in the mix here, Chuck? Because we there were some reports. Is it the BRP companies or is that so? Is that fake news? A, no, no, no. It's a group. Prusik is the sort of lead in terms of of, of dealing with me. But this is a this is a group. Mm -hmm. So Prusik Group is a um, very large African American founded and African American operated. Uh, developer of low-income housing. Mm -hmm. The CEO and founder of Prusik Group has a daughter at Spelman um, and has deep connections to Atlanta. Okay. There's another group uh, called Lafayette Square, which is the which is also African-American owned and founded, which is the financing group, the, the capital group. Uh, and then uh, and, and then Prusik, and there may be one or two others involved. I'm not sure. Uh, when you do this kind of development, you know, you have sort of the couple of lead developers, but then, you know, other people may take a piece here or there or be involved here or there. But the people I've been dealing with have been Prusik, BRP, and Lafayette Square. Chuck, the Weston neighborhood development, upon hearing the news last year, and I know they sent a letter to Prusik outlining concerns about then what was they considered a lack of engagement for redesigning this redevelopment proposal. But from through your lens, has that improved since then? Yes, as far as I know, and I haven't seen it, but I understand that they have now sent a letter of support. Mm -hmm. um, Prusik took a different approach, um, and that's what the confusion was about. Prusik wanted to get input from the city before they went to the community. Mm -hmm. They wanted to know what the city wanted before they went to the community. Um, and and that's, you know, that that's just one way to do it. Mm -hmm. The city ultimately made it clear that they wanted the community input to come first. And so Prusik did, in fact, did that. And they've been meeting with the community. They've been meeting with leaders. They've been meeting with organizations. They've had uh, a big community-wide open meeting. Uh, they've been meeting with AU leadership. They've been meeting with a lot of folks. And as far as I know, that group sent a letter of support. So with the recently presented the new proposal for redeveloping this this project here, and then compared to earlier ideas, it's, it's lower density and still breaking up the property into smaller, more walkable routes. You've looked at this proposal. You like that? Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. You know, the earlier proposals were thrown out there with, you know, without exactly a, a, an eye towards what was economically feasible. Mm -hmm. um, this one, again, they've handled in a different way. This one they've built from the ground up. And uh, so they've taken the community input, they've taken the input from the mayor and his team, and they've come up with a design and a layout that both satisfies the community desires, um, but is also economically feasible. And you know, Chuck, I'm looking at these design proposal where it's housing, and then of course this is so important too, including affordable housing units, and then job mm -hmm. creation. It says the potential to create 500 plus new full-time jobs in the community and creating 1,400 plus jobs during construction. So let's talk about that for a moment, because as you know, in the history of this city, and you look at the history with the Russell family, how important it is that minority-owned contractors are also part of the redeveloping and building of Atlanta. Is that something that you mm -hmm. are, you feel they will do that, that they can ensure that that will happen? Oh, I'm I'm confident and I confident that they will, and and in fact, I have already introduced them to um, the family that you were talking about, and uh, I know they're talking to them and to others, and and I'm I'm absolutely confident that these guys do this for a living. Mm -hmm. These guys are not sort of traditional developers coming in to try and try their hand at this kind of development. These guys are mission-based developers. Mm -hmm. They are community-based developers. Uh, their community-based investment fund. Um, they know what they're doing, and and, and this is right within, uh, you know, what they do. And, you know, Chuck, we've heard this before. I mean, so we there's a whole list we could go down with the past administrations, not just the previous one, but even ones before then, 
where we've had, the community has had the promise of community benefits. You and I both know that. And there have been some calls that some of these community benefits should be binding, that there should be an actual contractual agreement. Is that something that you would support just to ensure? Because, again, it, it looks good on paper, and when you stand in front of the neighbors and say all this, but if there's no binding agreement, then I, you can understand some community folks saying, okay, well, we just have to take your word for it. And then the possibility that they don't get everything that they they were promised. Well, I think they're, I, you know, I don't know the details of this. So I, remember, I'm, I'm, I'm not part of their team. Sure. Uh, but you but have a voice. As far as I know, there will be something signed. Now, whether that's signed, you know, there's there's no legal way to sort of sign an agreement with the community, so to speak. But there will be an agreement with Invested Land, I'm sure, mm -hmm. uh, that will set forth that, you know, I'm sure there'll be a development agreement. And so as it stands, um, you believe in these developers. You've talked them up. You say they are community mission-based. So you believe the developers will meet the neighborhood's needs the community's needs, the city of Atlanta's needs with this project. You you have faith in it. I, I do. I You know, you, them, I've spent a lot of time talking to them and meeting with them. You look at what they've done in the past with their other projects and other places, and they always have. Mm -hmm. Now, I can't predict the future any better than you can, uh, but they seem to be the right guys who seem to have done this before um, are making sincere promises and as you know you know we've this this project has been going on for four years mm -hmm. trying to get this thing developed in a way that we want and the city wants it developed that's going to be good for the community and you know i this is this frankly is the best shot we've had chuck is there anything that you feel comfortable talking about that you do have a concern that might again nix this whole deal because you all as the owners you all have been down this road before you know it comes down to the support from the city mm -hmm. and if the city is behind it and if the city comes up with the appropriate package this deal is going to happen and frankly if the city doesn't come up with the appropriate package this deal may not happen and um you know right now we're all very hopeful uh and all of the uh all of the the indications from everybody I've spoken to are very positive. Uh, and, you know, I think they're working together really productively and really well to try and get this thing to happen. I, I'm, I'm just, I don't see any other, you know, team that could do any better. I mean, these guys, they're racially diverse, they're ethnically diverse. They've got the capital in place. They've got the experience. Um, they've just, they've got the whole package and I'm, you know, I say I can't predict the future any better than you can, but boy, I, um, I I really think this is the right choice. You know, Chuck, when you look back to when you all first bought this property, what year was it again? 1996. Yeah. You paid about what three million for it? I don't remember what we paid. You know, you don't you don't remember what you paid for it. Come on, you what? <laughs> you don't remember, Chuck? No. It was also if you <laughs> you may not remember. We signed a contract to buy the mall, mm -hmm. and the day after we signed the contract, the largest tenant in the mall, who comprised 33% of the mall, went bankrupt, mm -hmm. and in two weeks, gone. Yeah. So we ended up buying a mall that was, you know, two-thirds vacant. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, a third vacant mm -hmm. um, the day after we signed the contract. So, I, you know, it was not exactly all, all roses at the time. But the value of it now is all roses, right? We've held, we've held this thing a long time. Yeah, yeah. Is it a bittersweet for you? Because you, your family's been involved, this, you've been involved in this, and it has been it home is. to some small businesses. It is. And I grew up at that mall. You know, I, not too many people know my father built the mall, mm -hmm. and he sold it in 1977. And I bought it, or 1976. And I bought it, Marty and I bought it back independently of my dad 20 years later. Um, but I remember going out there as a kid. Mm -hmm. um, I remember Orange Julius yep. and uh, <laughs> some of the other retailers and, and running around. And, you know, we still own, my family still owns the shopping area and some, 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 some other centers in the area. And mm -hmm. Marty and I own the Ace Hardware building. Uh, so we're still part of the community and we're not going away. Uh, we'll still be there.
And, and, and yes, it's bittersweet, but at the same time, we're very excited about what's going to come for the community and, and, and the benefits uh, to everybody there. I do have a question from a listener who wants to know, have you all looked at other, and I think you might have mentioned this, have you all looked at, Rose asked him, have you all looked at other projects from this group and will they be similar to Atlanta and what other cities can you, do you know? Um, yeah, they've done several. They just finished a big one in Harlem. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Chuck, beautiful. now, you know, some folk <laughs> say Harlem is not the same. <laughs> I, you know, I, all I can tell you is that was one of their more recent projects and it, it's a beautiful, it was a beautiful development and they are doing some other deals in other cities. So yeah, we, I mean, you know, you can go to their websites, mm-hmm. the various websites, both BRP and Prusik, and you can see some of the other deals they've done. And just again, uh, Chuck, so folks understand this, cause I think that we, we have this platform now, so we should really, if we can, and I know you don't work for them, but again, explain that relationship between the BRP company and and the press group so it's the brp company is is basically fronting the money for this is that what you said i just want to be clear no no no. lafayette square is the financing partner okay Um, brp is the housing developer and prusik does the retail piece so they're partners and you know this is going to have this is going to this project is going to have a lot of different pieces and 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 so different parties are going to do different parts of it and but fin- they're working together. Working they're together. partners. Okay. And finally, Chuck, you know me, so I'm going to ask you again. Uh, you want to give me the value or how much uh, this? I can't. <laughs> Why not? I can't. Because it's not a done deal? I, um, or it's not? Uh, it's not a done deal yet. And by the way, you know, I mentioned that my dad built the mall. Um, my uh, partner, Marty's mo- grandmother, um, grandmother or mother grew up in that neighborhood as well. So that's nice. No, but Chuck, quit trying to change the, the direction of the, oh, of the conversation. His mother, his, his mother uh, gradu- went, grew up on Matthew street and graduated from Brown high school. That's great. Uh, can you give me a ballpark figure of what the value of this? I can't, I'm sorry. You know me, Chuck. I'm sorry. I've known you for many, many years, Rose. And- you know, I'd do almost anything for you, but you know I can't say that. Well, Chuck, I appreciate you taking the time. Chuck Charles Chuck Taylor, he is part of the HT West End LLC. That's been the long ownership group of the Mall West End, a longtime part owner for many decades. Thank you for giving us an update. You hear you see and read a lot of reports. My thing is let's go straight to somebody that can give us the answer. So I appreciate you taking the time. Rose, I really appreciate you reaching out and I appreciate you having covered this from the beginning. And, you know, I hope you'll keep your fingers crossed like I am that this thing gets done and that West End sees this magnificent new development. And can you make sure there's a barbecue place, an ice cream place over there too, Chuck? You know how I feel about yes. that. All right. Yes, I will. I will do my best, actually. <laughs> um, I'm working on the very same thing and we have a barbecue place in mind. So, oh, I yeah. appreciate it. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. Thanks. Bye. And we should note again that Charles Chuck Taylor is a formal, former board member and chair of WABE's operating group, AETC, as well as he's the current board chair of the WABE Foundation. you're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Last month, the Biden administration, in an attempt to drive the production of solar panels and also address other clean energy technologies, invoked the Defense Production Act. Biden has also lifted tariffs on solar panels. Now, supply and demand challenges have hit nearly every manufacturing sector. This shouldn't come as a surprise. We should know this. And there are some reasons. Well, there are two main ones, and we'll talk about more about that in a moment. But the big question is, how much will all this help U.S.-based solar companies? Let's bring in Jamie Porges, co-founder and CEO of Radiant Solar, headquartered here in Georgia. Jamie, Jamie, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. Let's see. Now, Jamie, I know you work in solar, but you know how to unmute. (laughs) Sorry about that. I saw you talking to Chuck, and I didn't want to barge in. (laughs) That's okay. Welcome to the program. I appreciate you taking the time. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Jamie, you all have been around since 2007. I'm just curious, how big is Radiant Solar now? How many employees do you all have? 
Uh, we have 30 plus employees. So we're a, a medium, small to medium sized company in the solar business. And briefly explain to our listeners uh, the type of solar projects you all typically work on. Um, our typical project, we work with commercial, industrial, and uh, small utility projects. We've done a lot of work for the utilities in Georgia and the electric cooperatives throughout the southeast and beyond. And is it solely just installing solar panels? Is that it? So we do design engineering and uh, as well as uh, operations and maintenance for these assets. You know, once they're built, they, uh, they're low maintenance, but they're not no maintenance. So mm-hmm. we also have a healthy maintenance business. I want to go back, Jamie. Let's go back pre-pandemic, how would you describe your company's ability to meet all these projects and the deadlines? This is pre-pandemic. How would you assess that? Uh, pre-pandemic, um, we, you know, let me start by just saying that the solar industry, we, there's a term we use called the solar coaster. And uh, <laughs> as it's matured, it, it has its ups and downs and it seems to go in a two-year cycle. But, um, you know, pre-pandemic, um, the, the solar industry was on a really uh, just a tremendous run, especially here in the state of Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure if the audience knows, but Georgia is a top 10 solar market for mm-hmm. capacity. Involved, and there's a lot of support on both sides of the aisle. And um, there's it's just a it's been a great market for solar. We're very excited about it. And, and prior to um, we had tariff issues under the Obama administration, the uh, and then the Trump administration that they were manageable. Um, so the, the market prices continued to come down much like cell phones or computers, mm-hmm. you know, pricing's down about 90%, was down about 90%, uh, you know, over the past 10 years until the last 18 months. And it's mm-hmm. been a real challenge for us. And we're going to get into that because I'm also curious, components that you all use at Radiant Solar that you are required, did they primarily come from China? Um, it's hard to buy any solar panel that don't have some parts that come from China, but mm-hmm. most of our, our modules came from either North America or Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam. Um, and, but, you know, China is responsible for about 80% of the silicon that mm-hmm. goes into these modules. So that's a real challenge to, you know, to supply exclusively outside of the Chinese market uh, for silicon based products. And so, Let's move up the pandemic hits. And how long did it take you all to notice that there were going to be some issues? <laughs> Not only just getting some of the components and products, but you probably noticed that this is going to really impact our industry, which obviously would have trickled down and impact us. How long soon after the pandemic did you realize that? It took a little while. Um, our biggest challenge initially was shipping. Um, as everybody knows, the ports got congested to, uh, to ship a panel from uh, from Asia to the United States um, went up by three times, but that was that was manageable. Um, I think the real challenge came in the summer last year um, when the uh, the custom U.S. Customs and Border Protection started. Um, they 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 brought out their rules for uh, making sure that there was no coerced labor from China mm-hmm. in, uh, involved in panels. So the uh, the area of Xinjiang where the Uyghurs live has been a major focus. There's been a lot of legislation around it. And let me just say that the the industry is absolutely behind eliminating any sort of coerced or slave labor Mm -hmm. in the manufacture of any solar component. Um, I want to be upfront about that. The challenge is, is the chain of custody and making sure. And so it's taken a while for U.S. uh, Customs and Border Patrol working with the solar manufacturers to come up with something that's satisfactory to both parties that there's uh, that the um, that we can meet their their level of uh, of certainty that mm-hmm. there's no coerced labor and that's that's been a challenge. We lost some projects last year as a result of that. Um, and then the legisl the legislation that was passed by Congress um, is just took effect in the last month. We're seeing a little few hiccups, but I think we're going to get through that portion. So it started with the. The, the 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 coerced labor issue that mm-hmm. started last summer and then the double whammy was this spring when there was an announcement that there were the U.S. Um, Trade Commission was going to look at mm-hmm. putting tariffs on solar panels um, from four primary markets where the U.S. gets its its solar panels. So that was kind of a double whammy and um, prices on panels have risen uh, as much as 100 percent in some mm-hmm. cases so, in that time period. So you're just based on what you just said, you're looking at, wow, shipping prices that skyrocketed, went through the roof. Yeah. 
those key solar panel components that you all use more expensive. Then you had the labor issue, sort of this perfect storm. And I know folks don't like that term, perfect storm, which leads me to this, you know, just how bad is this shortage right now, Jamie? It's, um, it is impacting uh, the market's going to be down about 30% this year, which after when we were growing 15, 20% a year, year over year, um, we were on a roll, the industry was. So this has hit us, you know, between the challenges of the pandemic, um, commodities, shipping, and then you add in these trade issues. Um, it's been, it's been a real challenge. And, uh, you know, we've, We've worked a lot with uh, our local senators, um, you know, Senator Warnock and Senator Ossoff's office, their, their staff's been great to work with and have mm-hmm. helped us. And, um, you know, I think the, the announcement that the president made was due to the hard work of a lot of people and a lot of folks in Washington, like Senator Ossoff's office and, and Warnock's office, um, making it clear how, how, hard, how badly we were hurting. Um, it'll impact our business by, you know, 30 or 40% this year. Um, and uh, that's so, a big hit for any company, 30 to 40%, a, Jamie, you know that. How are you all weathering that storm? Um, well, we're, you know, we're not hiring right now and uh, we're, we're holding on through it. It's uh, it's a challenge. You know, we've got 30 people. A lot of them have been with us for, you know, I think the, I think the challenge in the market and the view from from Washington is you have these the issue of the solar panels, but the panel is just one small part of the value chain. Mm-hmm. And even if that panel comes from China, the 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 vast majority of the value is unlocked in the U.S. once that panel lands here. Between the labor, you have you know the racking, which is mm-hmm. made of steel. It comes a lot of it comes from the U.S. and Canada. It's really a North American issue, and um, we have there's wire and and transformers and all this other equipment is just, the panel is just one part of it. And, uh, but it's kind of, it's really clogging everything up. And so the whole supply chain is suffering as a result. Is it accurate to say then that you all are behind on projects? Uh, We are, Um, you know, there are delays in shipping and um, it's, uh, you know, I'd like to say that the the moratorium on tariffs has helped, you know, um, some of the damage was already done and we're we're gonna be recovering from that for a little while, but it was, it was welcome news. Um, but yeah, we're going to be playing catch up and the industry will be playing catch up for the next 18 months. Um, so it's to, to, to start and then stop the process all over again, it will take 18 months to, to two years to, to get back to where we were. Can you all, I, I, you may not like this question. I mean, no CEO likes this question, but can you all survive? for two years until this turns around, if it turns around, I mean, it won't be optimistic for you. Well, we, we've been here for 15 years and on the solar coaster, that's uh, several lifetimes. So we expect to be around for a while, but others won't be. And it, it, it and I'm not going to dismiss it. It is a challenge. And, um, you know, we've, um, we've kind of had some decent years recently. So we've kind of prepared for this moment too. We, we've learned that you, you need to prepare for a drought, uh, so to speak. And, um, we're, we're, we're ready for it, but, uh, it doesn't make it any easier. And, um, so, you know, I think everybody, not just in Georgia, but nationwide, um, are struggling with it. How have you prepared for this drought as you put it? Well, you, you're, you're, uh, you try not to hire, you try not to spend money. You don't have to spend and you try to make the projects you have, have as, as profitable as possible. And that's really all you can do. Um, we've got great people and, um, we just kind of buckle down and, uh, tighten our belt and, um, and try not to spend, uh, spend money on things you don't need to spend money on. So, uh, we, and we have great clients that are, that, uh, that understand too. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll get, we'll get through it, but it, we're missing a, I think the other side of it is we're, we'll survive the downside, but we're missing a, 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 a huge growth opportunity. The demand for solar uh, amongst companies right now, um, we've never been busier. Um, the phone's ringing off the hook mm-hmm. and we need to get this resolved so we can keep building solar for Georgia. I have a listener that just emailed me a question and wants to know, ask him, Rose, simply why, why aren't more of these products just made here in the U.S.? It's an excellent question. It's, 
I would say, why aren't more cell phones made here? Why aren't more commuters, uh, computers and TVs? Yeah, made why aren't our sneakers made here? You know, we, um, I think you're going to see more of it. Um, Senator Ossoff has a, a carrot versus stick approach where he has legislation which provides an incentive for solar manufacturing in the U.S. Uh, and I, I would really like to see that happen. Um, there are some large, you know, one of the largest plants in the United States is um, in near Dalton, Georgia. Mm-hmm. It's the, the Q-Cells plant. And it's a Korean company that's come here and made a, a major investment. And now that shipping is so much more expensive than it, than it used to be, and I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. Um, it will make things more competitive here. But I did talk to the executives about Q-Cells and I said, why can't we be competitive here? And he said, it's, there is still, as much as there's automation, there's still a lot of labor and um, it's just a more expensive market. So we would love to see more solar panels manufactured in the US, but I think it's also really important to understand that, again, that value chain, mm-hmm. the majority of the value chain is coming from the United States and that, that value stays here. So it's just one, one small component. But it's remarkable that that one small component has led to your company looking at a 30 to 40% revenue decline, production that, decline. Yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. And what the solar industry needs is a little bit of certainty, uh, both on tax credits and on, on trade and tariff issues. And I um, think we would advocate for a, a long-term incentive, get rid of the tariffs, have a long-term incentive for manufacturers, maybe 10 years, and then have a 10-year tax credit. And that tax credit should step down year mm-hmm. over year. It shouldn't just stay at one level because we continue to make progress in this industry. So right now it's at 26%, it steps down to 22% next year, and then it goes down to 10%. We need to get that renewed. And if it went from 26%, then 25, 24 over 10 years, I think the industry would be very excited about that. And it would incentivize us to continue to bring the cost of solar down. And um, so that that's really what we need out of Washington right now. The support we have in Georgia, you know, between the governor, our senators, the Public Service Commission, there is a lot of support for solar mm-hmm. here in Georgia. Um, I wish we could, uh, they could have a little more influence in Washington. Let me ask you this, because you mentioned the solar coaster, as you called it, and you mentioned that pre-pandemic in 2020, where, you know, prior to the announcement with the pandemic hitting, and how everything was, it was a boom. And now, but there's another casualty here, and that's the loss of so many jobs, Jamie, in all of this as well, in your industry. Because well, I remember doing, doing segments where there was, there was all these initiatives to introduce people in, in, into the pipeline of working in this industry. And there was a, a lot of support in Washington. And then all of a sudden this pandemic hits. And now, you know, we have another casualty, and that's just for for folks who can get jobs. We would be hiring a lot more people, and we would be creating a lot more jobs if we had this issue resolved. And um, and that is really frustrating. And I think, um, you know, the panel is the it's the sexy part of this of a solar system. You know, and uh, you know, my workers and I may not be as sexy as a solar panel, but we pay tax <laughs> we pay taxes. You know, and we have uh, kids that we have to you know write college tuition checks for. Yeah. And, uh, so it's, um, you know, yeah, it's, it is, it is frustrating. I think, you know, I think the, the administration it's, it's sometimes you have to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think sometimes in Washington, they want to get things perfect. And, um, uh, we, we just, we, if we could just have good, we don't need uh, a ton of support. We just need a little bit of support at the at the periphery, and we need um, not to have roadblocks kind of tossed in our way. Um, the cost of solar is so competitive with all other forms of generation. That's why it's grown so quickly in Georgia. Georgia Power um, has you know fully embraced solar. Mm-hmm. Uh, another interesting fact in Georgia is that the uh, the electric co-ops of Georgia there's about 33 of them, and of all co-op solar in the United States, one third of it is here in the state of Georgia. It's um, we are a true leader here and um, everybody is just anxious to keep this winning streak going that we've been on. And um, there's a there's a there's lower energy rates at the end of the day for all ratepayers if we can solve this problem and install more, more solar. So even with invoking the Defense Pro- Production Act and you're you all are hoping that this will help your industry, you know, bounce back. But with that and the tariffs. 
is it safe to say that you, you will see some results anytime soon? You just told me a while ago it could take 18 months for the complete turnaround. But with this latest from the Biden administration, how soon could you see some something that really benefits your your company and your industry overall? Well, with the announcement on tariffs, um, the way that the the proposal for tariffs was was announced, um, the tariffs were going to be retroactive, which means everybody had to charge us for the tariff ahead of time mm -hmm. while they waited to see if a tariff was going to be imposed. So once the um, once the president put a moratorium on tariffs for two years, that cost came off the modules. And that was, you know, that was about 10 percent. It, it helped and it helped give us some a little bit of uh, visibility and certainty into uh, into the next 12 months. So we are um, it's, it's better right now, but we're kind of on eggshells, you know, hoping that the next shoe doesn't drop. Um, and I would really like to see, you know, um, some legislation in, in Washington. And, um, you know, I think we're probably going to have to wait till the lame duck session for mm -hmm. something to happen. And, um, you know, ironically, some of the best solar legislation has come in the lame duck where both yeah. sides come together and get some things done. Um, a few years ago, they uh, extended the tax credit and, um, and also lifted the, the uh, oil export ban. Mm -hmm. So both sides got something. I think it's going to require something like that. Um, you know, oil and gas is an input into solar. It seems a little ironic, but yeah, we can't, we couldn't do our jobs without oil and gas. So um, I think we would be supportive of, of seeing some sort of bipartisan bill that um, created more jobs here in the U.S. across the energy spectrum. Well, whenever there is bipartisan support, that that's always big news. And folks like me, we we love to report when there's bi we love to report when there's bi bipartisan support. You mentioned that you all rely on oil. You need that, obviously, if you're talking about you know distribution and 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 how you all get your products. But overall, sure. I'm just curious too, because as a solar guy, a solar dude, how sure. you feel that all of this will impact the, the nation's plan to move towards clean energy. You all are part of that. That's a great question. And I think it's going to be a natural transition. Um, you know, when when we had uh, an abundance of cheap natural gas, it kind of led to a transition from coal to natural gas. And um, there will be, you know, no coal power plants in, in the near future in Georgia um, as a result of reliable supplies of natural gas. And so it's a transition. So you go from one fuel to the next fuel to the next fuel. And we were really on this nice kind of hockey stick trajectory mm -hmm. that that didn't we needed less help and more not folks getting in our way and and we're going to get there so this transition is is happening it's going to happen more rapidly than you think you know unfortunately um, t 10 years goes by in the blink of an eye you yeah. know and uh, you know and we have we've had two electric cars in our family i also have a truck and a, you know and an suv so um but you you that that transition for us has gone seamlessly and, mm -hmm. and once you have one an electric vehicle or solar, you see like, wow, this is really simple. This is not complicated. And that that transition is going to happen regardless. It's just a matter, is it going to happen, you know, faster or slower? And the market is really mm -hmm. driving the demand for solar right now. So we just need a little help um, and a lot of certainty. And I think everybody will be shocked how much progress we make over the next, you know, over the coming decade and more. And Jamie, as we wrap up, I got a couple more questions. One, just curious, do you think though that our nation moved a little bit too slow toward everyone jumping on the importance of solar? I mean, because you know, I can remember having this conversation sure. some decade, you know, maybe less than two decades ago, and folks were like, ah, that, you know, I want to talk about solar. <laughs> you know, that, well, that... um, the co-founder of our company, uh, James Marlowe, always had a saying that you know, of the South, that we're uh, we may be slow to catch on, but we're quick to catch up. And <laughs> I think I think low cost solar has allowed us to catch up quickly without impacting the ratepayers. Because you know, and, and we work with uh, you know working with a lot of the EMCs, the the electric co-ops. You know, they talk a lot about protecting the ratepayer. So mm -hmm. the, they waited. Georgia Power and the co-ops waited until the cost of solar came down, and then once it came down to where they could save the ratepayers money and lock in because you know their, their fuel cost isn't going to go up over 30 years yeah because it, 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 the sun is the sun is free once it's built right but and you know yeah. it was expensive for residential folks to get yeah. solar and it was like you know and when do i start really to see you know some impact on my light bill i mean that was it was 
only the a certain percentage of folks could afford solar panels on their on their roof. So now it's it's changed and and it has come down and now we can't get it because there's a supply and demand issue, which goes All back right. to my first question. So as we wrap up, Jamie, if I talk to you maybe a year from now, what do you hope our conversations like? I um, I hope that um, I'm. You know, I have less time for you because I'm so busy, but I will always make time for you, Rose, because we're, I think next year we're going to be uh, absolutely slammed. We have more. We have a lot of customers and um, we're going to have a lot of work next year. Knock on wood that, um, that the uh, the administration, and the other folks in Washington um, make it a little easier on us. But I think next year things will be better and uh, we'll get through it. Um, I'm an optimist at the end of the day. You can't be in the solar industry without being an optimist. So, I agree uh, with that. And then I'll, hopefully, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll leave you with that note. And hopefully, you'll, hopefully you'll be able to tell me, Rose, we also hired about 10 more people. So that's good news as well. I, I hope so. Jamie Porges, co-founder and CEO of Radiant Solar, headquartered here in Georgia. Thank you for taking the time. Good conversation. Best of luck to you. We'll check back in with you. Rose, thank you very much. It's been great being with you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Our summer intern is Lennox Johnson, who is proudly representing Mount Holyoke College. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And you can catch Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., And we also have a podcast, like everybody else. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.